on the homologous structures and where they are. Once we do the embryo lecture, those things should fall into place a little bit, but I am also going to give you a comparison picture, not in today's lecture because we really don't have the time, but either at the end of the embryo lecture we'll bring those two up again or I will post to you something on Sakai specifically just to help you put those concepts together. All right. Keep in mind that if you have a question, you can stop me. Most of the stuff we're going to talk about today is pretty straightforward. It's just a lot of work. All right, remember to have those clickers ready because those questions are going to pop up as we go along. All right, so we have our reading assignments, we have our objectives, and we're going to cover most of these in our lecture today. Now, we started off, let me just do this quickly. There we go. Okay, so we started off talking about the external structures. The reason we did that is because they seem to be a little harder to grasp and it takes a little longer to actually get comfortable with knowing what the structures are and how everything works. So for today, we're going to focus on the internal structures so in the female, we're going to talk about the ovaries, the uterus, and the vagina. And in the male, we're going to talk about the testes, the ductus deferens, seminal vesicles, the prostate. Now, we're not going to talk into detail on the testes because you've done that in histology already. There's no point in us actually reiterating that. We're going to start off talking about our female organs. Right. So here we have a sagittal section of the female pelvis. And you can see a number of structures that you're already familiar with. You can identify the urinary bladder, the urethra. Here we can see the labia minora and mi majora, and you can kind of get a little bit more of the relationships here. We also have the vagina. Notice how it is compressed. Right? It's compressed. It's folded onto itself, creating a very small canal in this instance. We have the uterus. Look at the position of the uterus. We're going to talk about it in a little more detail. Um, but the uterus in this position is quite important. We have the ovary and, of course, our uterine tubes, which you probably know as the fallopian tubes. We have the rectum. We're not going to talk about the rectum in these lectures or the bladder, but we are going to keep referring to them. So keep in mind where those structures are and... Remind yourself of the information that you already know. All right, so let's start off with the ovary. We're going to talk about a structure known as the broad ligament in a minute. But to give you its location, it hangs off the posterior edge of this broad ligament. The broad ligament is basically just a layer of peritoneum that folds over the uterus and its components. And you can see here, there's part of the broad ligament. Now, in the lab, you will see part of this. You won't see uh, the whole structure because you kind of have to remove some of it in order for you to see the underlying structures. Now, notice how you can clearly see the ovary on this side. What we're looking at here is the posterior view. Please keep that in mind. That's very important, right? We have the uterine tube here lying close association with our ovary. And then we have two ligaments of interest. One ligament of interest here is the proper ligament of the ovary. 
And here with the cut through section, you can see it very clearly how it comes from the uterus, or attaches to the uterus rather. And then we also have the suspensory ligament of the ovary, and that is a nice layer of peritoneum that covers our ovarian vessels. So the ovarian artery, the ovarian vein, and then of course all the nerves that travel with them. Please keep in mind that the nerves to the ovary is going to travel with the vessels in this ligament. Okay. Now, the small portion of the broad ligament that attaches our ovary to it gives us a little bit of an extension, a little bit of a, um, a fatty flap, if you will, and that is known as the mesovarium. And that is what you see here. If you were to lift the ovary up and hold it, the portion that attaches it to the broad ligament is the mesovarium. Okay. Now, you'll read some conflicting information about whether the ovary is inside the broad ligament or outside. It does have broad ligament covering its anterior surface. However, the posterior aspect of it, or the majority of the posterior aspect of it, is lined by its own epithelium. And that is important for release of the ovum and final um, take-up by our uterine tubes. Okay. So now if you look at the ovary in their position, here we have the uterus. We have the ovary here. We're looking at it from an anterior view. Okay, so this is the flip side of the other one. And there you can see the uterus. There's the uterine tube and the ovary hiding behind it. We pull it out of the way, you can see the vasculature coming down, very closely associated with the ureter as it travels down, on one side more so than on the other. Folds over our iliac vessels as it travels into the pelvic cavity to go and supply the ovary. Now, because of this, the lymphatic drainage of the ovary will be to which lymphatic nodes, lumbar nodes, right? This is because of the vasculature, and the vasculature is the way it is because of its embryological development. We are going to talk about that in more detail um, in the next lectures. Where do these nerves refer to? Where do, where do they have their cell bodies? They go along, or the, the uh, visceral fibers go along the sympathetic nerves that correspond to the T10 or T11 uh, region. And this is the same for male and female. Even though the testes are outside of the body technically, their pain referral is to the same place. Okay. Now we have to talk about the uterine tube and the kind of purpose of doing it in this order is because we're going to talk about the ovum and how it travels. Okay, so the ovary is here. You can see the relationship with the uterus and the uterine tube. And you can see that the fimbria is not covering the ovary. That is quite important. Okay, it's not attached to it. It doesn't cover it. This allows for the ovum to be released into the space, and then travels through the fimbria into the infundibulum, which is the largest part of our uterine tube. Okay, it'll move through the infundibulum into the ampulla, 
and the ampulla is the location where fertilization takes place. Right. Because fertilization takes place in the tube, there's a high possibility, well, it's not that high, but it's quite common to have an ectopic pregnancy located within the tube itself. Although do keep in mind that because there's an open space here into the peritoneal cavity, ectopic pregnancies can actually be found anywhere in the abdomen. And those embryos will go and attach to whatever is the closest structure they can find, whether it be the mesentery, the intestines, or even the liver, in some cases that have been reported. Now, as we move towards the uterus, we're going to encounter the isthmus, and this is a very narrow region that's going to go towards our fundal area of the uterus. And where it joins with the uterus, we have this little space known as the cornu, or the horns of the uterus. So the tube will attach to the horns of the uterus, and it gives us a nice triangular shape for the uterine cavity. Now, I briefly mentioned ectopic pregnancy. So what you see here, there's the uterus, there's the ovary. Okay, looks very different. This is an endoscopic picture. Um, this looks very different to what you would see it in the lab. But, but the structures are the same. And here you can see the relationship of the um, ampulla of the tube with the ovary. That gives you an idea that the tubes actually fold backwards. All right, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. So if they remove that, this is what it would look like, an embryo with all of its membranes and things just in the wrong place. Okay. Right. Why does this look weird? Guys, try to answer this question as correctly as possible. Discuss if you need to. Okay, I'm going to give you about 10 seconds, so if you haven't clicked in, please do so. Right. Let's see what you think. Oh, I did have a timer. All right, everybody's clicked in their answer. Right, we're going to close the polling. There we go. Ooh. I 
I like it when the questions have this kind of spread. All right, so let's talk about option A. Visceral afferents travel with a parasympathetic nerves. No, what's the general rule? Visceral afferents for pain travel with sympathetics. Now, sadly, we are going to learn about the exception in a little bit. But the ovaries still travel with the sympathetics. Right. Somatic pain from the parietal peritoneum around the ovary supplied by the T10 nerve. You fell into my trap. Okay. Not somatic pain. Okay. If you thought of this in terms of what is typically referred to as ovulation pain, which is a regional low pain, it's usually just a quick um, stabbing sensation in the iliac region, that's not T10. Okay? The ovaries actually lie way above the T10 level in terms of their position. So if there is going to be somatic pain from the peritoneum in terms of an infection or something like that, it wouldn't go via T10. Right, so the correct answer, of course, is going to be C. Okay. Correct answer here is C. Visceral afferents with the sympathetic nerves along the ovarian vessels. Yes, it does refer to the area of T10. But it's not a somatic pain, the visceral pain. All right. So if we continue with our pathway of our little ovum, it's now traveled into the fimbria, it's gotten into the uterine tube, and it's traveling through into the uterus all by itself. It didn't encounter um, any sperm, so there's no fertilization. Now gets into the uterus. And the first part of the uterus, obviously, it's going to get into is going to be this part here. Now, the uterus is divided into three parts. The fundus, easy way to remember where the fundus of anything is, it's the structure or the area right across from the entrance. Okay, so any organ that you look at that has a fundus, it's the area that's right across from the entrance. Kind of helps to remember where they are. So the fundus here is the most superior or actually the most anterior portion. The body forms the majority of the uterus. And then we have the cervix here, which is the neck of the uterus. And the cervix extends into the vagina. And that forms a, another important landmark that we'll talk about um, in quite some detail as well. Now, when you're looking at the uterus like this, it's very deceptive. It looks huge. It's not. Okay, size-wise, it's only about 7 centimeters long and two to two and a half centimeters wide. It is very small. I'm talking about what, something like that. Okay, so when you get into the lab, please don't start looking for this huge structure. Yes, it increases in size during pregnancy, and I'll show you a very beautiful picture of that. Okay, it does increase in size and changes its shape with each consecutive pregnancy. So it starts off being very small, very firm, and then with each consecutive pregnancy, it stretches out, and it doesn't go back to its original shape. And so with more pregnancies, you actually have a larger, less firm structure. Okay, so you can kind of tell whether someone had given birth or not. 
or ha was pregnant, actually, is a better way to put it. Now, if you look at the cervix down here, we have, again, this is kind of deceptive, we have two openings. We have the internal os, which leads from, oh, sorry, there was supposed to be a little thingy. The internal os, which leads from the uterine cavity, we have the cervical canal, and then we have the external os, which is what leads out to our vaginal canal. Okay. Now let's have a quick talk about uterine position. Now I say to you that our bladder is quite important in terms of relationships. So the uterus, in its most common or normal position, is anti-flexed, so it's bent forwards. And this flexion is a flexion of the uterine body in relation to the cervix. So when you hear anti-flex, it's bent forward. It's the body of the uterus on the cervix. Antiverted, again anti, meaning forward, is the angle that's created between the uterus or the cervix of the uterus in specifics to the vaginal canal. Now this position is really important for stability, for keeping it and maintaining it in place. Right? Think about it. The vagina is a muscular tube. If the uterus was positioned any other way, we would have quite difficulty keeping it in place. Right? So this position really helps to keep the uterus in place. We're going to talk about when that the, the factors that keep the uterus in place fails, and that is known as a prolapse. Okay. Now we can also have abnormal or variant positions. Here we have what is known as a retroverted. So retroverted, meaning it is bent posteriorly, verted onto the vagina, while retroflexed means it is flexed. The body of the uterus is flexed posterior onto the cervix. Now you can have a combination of these things. And there has been some speculation that, that this affects fertility, although there's not really any evidence as to one or the other way. Okay. Yes, it does create some other problems. You can see here that the retroflexed uterus is impacting on the rectum. In normal conditions, that wouldn't be much of a problem. But during pregnancy, of course, it's going to grow in relation to its original position. This could potentially have a problem. Okay. So when we're looking at the uterus during um, normal physiological state, we can see that it's a small structure, it's antiverted. And if we look at it during pregnancy, this is a late trimester scan, that's why it's okay to do it. Remember, we don't normally do a, any kind of imaging of a fetus. Um, so here we have the cervix. The bladder here, you can see the bladder is being compressed. The uterus all the way along here. And this just shows you that the uterus during pregnancy changes from a pelvic organ into an abdominal organ. Okay, same as the bladder, that when the bladder is full, it does the same change. When the uterus is pregnant, or when the woman is pregnant, her uterus becomes an abdominal organ. Okay. Um, it's very nice here. You can see the amniotic fluid. You can see the placenta here. And you can identify a few parts of the 
um, fetus as well. Now, what is our landmark to demarcate the start of the pelvic cavity? Aces. Mm. Everybody agree with that? What is the aces? Anterior superior iliac spine. Can you palpate your anterior superior iliac spine on yourself sitting right here? Yeah, it's actually, it's all right. It's okay to do that in polite conversation, right? So the way I remember where the pelvic cavity is, is that the abdominal cavity or the pelvis part that contributes to the abdominal cavity is okay to put my hands around in public. Below that would be the true pelvic cavity. And that's not something I'm going to try to palpate in front of you here. Okay, that is how I remember it and it kind of works. So on an image like this, right, can you see the anterior superior iliac spine? No, you can't. Right, what can you see? You can see the sacrum. Right, now remember our sacral promontory is a very nice landmark to use. You can always identify it on a sagittal image like this and it gives me that pelvic inlet. So the pelvic inlet is actually going to be there. Remember from the sacral promontory to the pubic symphysis. So there's the pelvic inlet. It's moved from being an entirely pelvic organ to an entirely abdominal organ. Okay. Right, let's talk about the cervix a little bit more. So the uterus has this lower portion which is slightly different in muscular composition. It's a little bit firmer. It has this cervical canal which has glands in it that produces um, a number of different products. And then we have the internal and external os. Now in most women, especially um, nulliparous women, they will have very small internal and external os. These two openings have to dilate. So when we're talking about dilation of the cervix, we're talking about this opening getting bigger. Right. The cervix has to relax, it has to shorten all of those things in order for labor and parturition to occur successfully. Okay. A lot of the glands that we have in here produce their products. We have a lot of different uh, we have a lot of different cells in here, and they're also susceptible to change and influence. Okay, and one of the most common things that influences the cervical cells is HPV infections. Right now, to look at the cervix from a slightly different view, we have to, unfortunately. open up the vaginal canal. Why? Because it's a compressed or a collapsed space. And what we do to do that, what we used to do that, is to put a speculum into the vagina, and so we open it so we can actually view our cervix. Now here you can see a normal, healthy cervix with a very small external os. Okay. Note the position of the external os in this case. It's not entirely in the middle. This is because of the position of the uterus, because it's bent. Okay, so you don't expect to see it dead on. If we take it out, however, this is what it would look like. Nice circular um, opening, very healthy looking. The surface is 
um, uniform in color and it is um, not dried or anything like that. Now, unfortunately, with HPV infection, you can have um, the cells changing their morphology in response to this virus. And we can pick up these changes by doing what is known as a pap smear. Basically, very easy, put in a, they used to use a, a, a cotton swab or a wooden stick. Now they have this little um, uh, cone-shaped plastic thingy, which is a lot more comfortable, apparently. And um, they just smear this part. Now, it's very important, where do these cells come from that we're interested in? They're coming from the cervical canal. So we want to make sure that we actually get the cells from inside. And that's why the external os is of interest for us in this case. Now, unfortunately, if you pick it up too late or um, you can't really assess it, then we have the potential of forming carcinoma. Now, when you get into pathology, you'll learn about the different metaplasias and the stages and so on. So we're not going to go into that. But this is what it looks like when there is a carcinoma of the cervix. Carcinoma, why? Because it's epithelium. That's what the word carcinoma refers to. It's the origin of the cells that have changed. Now, we can also look at the uterus and the cervix and the tubes with imaging. Okay? But it's a hollow structure, and so if you're going to use a radiograph or a plain x-ray, we want to have some contrast medium in there. Okay, so what we have here is a catheter introducing contrast medium into the cervix. So you can see the small little cavity or small amount of contrast in this space here, which is the cervix, and then extending broader into this triangular-shaped uterine cavity um, and finally, into the uterine tubes. Right. Now, notice how thin the uterine tubes are on this image. Okay. As we move along, and this is a very nice image, we actually have the uterine tubes getting larger towards the infundibulum. Finally, we reach the fimbria, and then what happens to the contrast medium? It goes into the peritoneal cavity. Okay. This is a direct connection. It's open. Right, so any kind of infection or anything that is in this space can ultimately spread into the peritoneal cavity. Right, one of the reasons we look for this spill of contrast is to see whether these um, uterine tubes are actually patent, because that's a very important part of fertility. So there we have our labels, They're all nicely labeled for you on your slide. And the cornea again here just to show you that junction between the uterine tube and the uterus itself. All right, I've talked a lot about the structures. Now let's talk about some ligaments. How does this uterus or this set of organs stay in place? Now I've mentioned about the broad ligament. The best way to explain the broad ligament is to equate it to a rain poncho. Essentially, you have the uterine tubes with the fimbria, the body of the uterus. Now keep in mind it's forward flexed and for antiverted, so like this. And the tube is curved backwards. Now if you were to throw a sheet over my head to cover everything except for my fingers, 
that would be the broad ligament. Okay, it's a sheet of peritoneum that covers all of this, except for my fingers. Right. Why is it important to know that? Is because the broad ligament is peritoneum. It covers all of the structures and it's going to expand when the uterus expands. Okay. What does the broad ligament cover? It covers the uterine tubes, it covers the um, proper ligament of the ovary. It also covers the round ligament of the uterus, which we haven't really spoken about yet. The round ligament of the uterus, basically, we're looking at the posterior aspect of our uterus here, right? Extending along the same plane as our proper ligament of the ovary or proper ovarian ligament, along the anterior aspect, we have the round ligament of the uterus. Now, you guys all remember the round ligament of the uterus when we did MSK, when we did the inguinal region. All right, can anybody remember what the round ligament of the uterus is attached to? I'm hearing it somewhere from this side. Labia what? Yes. It's attached to the labia majora. Okay. When we talk about the embryological development, we'll talk about why that happens. So it's attached to the um, labia majora, and that helps to keep the uterus in its antiverted, antiflex position. So that when you're moving around, it doesn't just move at will. Okay. Now we have some other ligaments we have to worry about, and these are the ligaments that help with the stability and maintaining the uterus within the pelvic cavity. Okay, now we've already talked a little bit about how the angle is, and that's one way of keeping it in place, but we have three ligaments attaching to the cervix itself. Please don't try to find these in the lab. Okay, you're not going to see them as clearly as they're drawn in the textbooks. They're pelvic fascia condensations. Yes, they're quite strong. They do act very nicely in keeping the cervix in place, but you're not necessarily going to see them in the lab. Okay, so please don't spend all of your time looking for them. Know where they are and how they're attached. So we have three of them. We have the pubocervical ligament attaching the cervix to the pubic symphysis, yes. Then we have our transverse cervical ligament, or also referred to as the cardinal ligaments, which extends laterally. And then we have our uterosacral ligaments, which attach the, the cervix to the sacrum, and those extend posteriorly. Now, do you remember something we learned about known as water under the bridge? Yes, what was the bridge? uterine artery and vein. So here you can see the uterine artery and vein and they lie within our transverse cervical ligament. Okay, that's an important landmark or an important clinical concept. Okay, and together with all the other factors, they support, these ligaments support the uterus, preventing it from prolapsing.
All right, I'm going to give you a few more seconds. And we're going to close. Everybody answered? Everybody good? Right. Of course it's there. So. Hmm. There's only one correct answer here, right? The round ligament extends anteriorly. It's very far from the uterine tubes. Uterine tubes. It's very close to the uterine tubes, very far from the ureter. What are we talking about here? Just what we discussed. All right. Uterosacral ligament. Pubocervical ligament. No. The only possible answer here is going to be transverse cervical ligament. What is the suspensory ligament? Yes, it's the suspensory ligament of the ovary containing the ovarian vessels. All right. So the correct answer here is transverse cervical ligament. All right. Okay, so let's continue talking. We've talked about all of these structures. Now we need to talk about the last part, the vagina. It is a fibromuscular tube. It is collapsed onto itself for the most part. However, it is a muscular tube and therefore it can stretch. This is why we can use a speculum in order to open it up so we can see the cervix. It's very closely associated with the rectum posteriorly. So much so that we have a shared septum between them known as the rectovaginal septum. So anything that causes a perforation into the septum will make a communication between the vagina and the rectum. Okay, so the rectovaginal septum is that separation between the rectum and the vaginal canal posteriorly. Also, keep in mind that the urethra is related in the anterior aspect very closely to the vagina. It opens into the external environment, and that happens at the vestibule. Okay, you guys recall the vestibule from the last lectures we had? Right? That opening in the per perineum where the vagina will open. Now, if you look here, you can see there's the levator ani muscle, just a little bit of MSK revision. There is the um, bulbs of the vestibule. There's the bulbospongiosis muscle over here, and there's going to be the labia majora. And you can see that a large part of the vagina is technically below our perineal membrane. You guys think that's, think that's important? Yes. Why? <laughs> there's always a reason, right? Okay, the reason why this is important is because its nerve supply is different. The lower quarter of the vagina has a different nerve supply to the rest. So, oh, let's talk about this first. Right, so I said that the cervix extends into the vagina, right? Because the uterus and the cervix are quite firm structures and the vagina is a thin muscular tube, as the cervix extends into the uppermost portion of the vagina, it will pull the walls towards it, creating a dome. 
Unfortunately, it's not so nice on this slide. Go back. You can see there's a little bit of a gutter around the cervix. There's a cervix there, and there's a little bit of a gutter around the cervix. And that area is known as the fornix. Now, for descriptive purposes, we divide this fornix into four different ones, an anterior, a posterior, and two lateral. So what you're seeing here are the two lateral fornices. Okay. Now, the relationship of the posterior fornix in particular is very, very important. We're going to talk about that in a little bit as well. Right. Also, if we, talk, if we look at the vaginal canal, the most, or the most distal portion, we have our greater vestibular glands draining into that portion. Okay. Now, I kept talking about keeping the uterus in place and making sure that it doesn't move. And this is one of the reasons. If those ligaments fail or the support from any of the structures that keep the uterus in place starts to fail, the uterus may move through and prolapse either into, which you can see here, or entirely through the vaginal canal. So what you're seeing here is essentially the walls of the vagina pulled around the uterus as it protruded out. Okay, um, This picture here shows you the extent of the displacement of the uh, vaginal canal. It's pushed out entirely. You can have various degrees of prolapse. And this usually occurs, um, or mostly occurs only in women who have given birth, usually um, multi-parous women, because every time the cervix dilates, it does weaken the ligaments, it does weaken the pelvic muscles. And very often, the complaint would just be a fullness. They're experiencing a fullness in their perineal region. Um, granted, when it gets to this point, there is a bigger complaint. But it's, it's not really associated with pain. It's just associated with great uncomfortness or discomfort, which is probably a better word. Okay. Right, so we talked about these structures being open to the side. We talked about the um, tubes being patent in terms of uh, fertility problems. So we need to consider that any kind of infection, and the two most common infections that we see that do this is gonorrhea and chlamydia. The infection can spread through the uterus, through the uterine tubes, and into the peritoneal cavity. Okay, it's an open communication. Right? Now, because it's an infection, of course, you can imagine as it moves through the smaller areas, it can create some scarring. Now, pelvic inflammatory disease really refers to a continual or recurring infection. It happens over and over. It gets really bad, very painful. And the uterine tubes may have some scarring in it. This really damages the internal organs. It 
damages the uterine wall, it damages the um, tubes, and can increase susceptibility to tubal pregnancies. Because they're scarring the fertilized um, embryo, the zygote at this point can't actually move to where it needs to be. Keep in mind as well is that if, if it does get bad enough, it will spread into the peritoneal cavity and may also cause some peritonitis. Right, so you guys had this slide already. This is a, a hysterosalpingogram. Here you can see the um, injection into the cervix. So this is located inside the cervix. And um, what, what's wrong here? All right. So we have a normal uterine tube on this side, although there's no spilling, but nothing on this side. Okay, and this is a typical case of what happens when there is a blockage within the uterine tube. All right, we've talked about the organs, we've talked about the peritoneum covering them, and we've talked about the broad ligament. And this is where the folds of the broad ligament really become an important um, concept. So here we have the uterus, we're looking at it at a parasagittal view, because we can still see the whole organ, and this blue, sorry, purple line is the fold of peritoneum over the organs. Okay, it lines um, the junction between the sigmoid colon and the rectum, folds over the uterus, and then folds over the bladder. Now, because it folds like this, we have the creation of two spaces. The vesicouterine pouch, or space, which is between the uterus and the bladder, and we have the rectouterine pouch, more commonly known as the pouch of Douglas. All right, so why do we care about these pouches? Because if there's any fluid collection inside the peritoneal cavity or the ab abdominal cavity, it will collect in the pouch of Douglas during a standing position. Okay, it's one of the locations we can quickly look if there's increased or abnormal amount of fluid in the abdomen. Right, because it's the lowest point in a standing position, fluid will accumulate here. That also, of course, means that we can sample this fluid and see what the problem is. Why is there an increase of fluid? And we do that via a coldocentesis. Colder, from the word coldosac, meaning blind end, basically puts a needle through the posterior fornix, into the peritoneal cavity. Now, this picture is a little bit deceptive. We do want to pierce that peritoneum because the fluid will be collecting inside the peritoneum. We can collect the fluid and we can test it to see what is in there. Now, keep in mind that the vaginal canal contains bacteria. and We do not want to introduce bacteria into the peritoneal cavity. So we have to use aseptic techniques and be very, very careful. The easiest way to go in there, you can see here the cervix is being pulled anteriorly. The needle is pushed through the posterior fornix. Okay, we can also do a coldoscopy, which means 
um, the same area. The difference is here we put a scope so we can see what's going on in that space. Okay. Right. Vascular supply. Okay, we have a lot of information. Um, I'm going to quickly talk about the vascular supply and then we're going to go for a break. So here we have, we've talked about during MSK about all of the vessels of the pelvic cavity. Now, all we're going to do is add on the vessels that supply the organs specifically. Please remember the rule of thumb. Can you remember the rule of thumb? It's the course and not the source, right? Why? Because I identify and name them based on where they're going, not where they're coming from. Yes, with the exception of the ovarian vessels, all of the vessels to the pelvic organs come from the internal iliac. Okay, that origin is sufficient. Don't need to worry about more details than that. Okay. Venous drainage, that follows the arterial supply, and the same applies to the ovaries. Okay. And there is some difference here in male and female, specifically in terms of the venous drainage and... Um, or venous plexuses and arterial plexuses. These differ greatly in the male and the female. So we're going to talk about the female here, and then later on we'll talk about male. So you're already familiar with the internal pudendal artery. Passes out the greater sciatic notch, curves around our little um, ischial spine, and then exits through the lesser sciatic notch. The other vessels we can identify is going to be our uterine artery, middle rectal artery, the vaginal artery, and the superior vesicle artery. Now, you guys, can, you guys can also remember that the superior vesicle artery is kind of a constant because it comes off our umbilical artery. Now, without having the organs in place, you really can't tell what's what. Okay? But we do have these three arteries in the female, in the male, we have slightly different arteries. All right. The blood supply of the ovary, the uterus, and the vagina are very closely linked. In fact, they anastomose with each other to form a plexus. The lymph drainage follows in this case, the origin of the vessel. Right, so what do we have here? We have the uterine tube, the fundus of the uterus, and we have our ovary here. There's the ovarian vessels coming through the suspensory ligament, and they will supply the uterine tube, the ovary itself, and then continue to supply the fundus of the uterus. We have the uterine artery coming in almost at the level of the cervix. Remember which ligament they travel in? Transverse cervical. So they're going to be, and there's the ureter. You can see the relationship between them. It's going to send branches towards the body of the uterus as well as towards the vagina. Then we have the vaginal artery coming in. There's our pelvic diaphragm, our levator, and you can see all of this is still above that. And the vaginal artery is going to do the exact same. It's going to come in, it's going to send branches to go up, 
and branches to go down. The internal pudendal artery will supply the inferiormost portion of the vagina, but will also send branches up to go and anastomose with the rest of these vessels. The major plexus around the female organs is an arterial plexus. Bear in mind that this does provide channels for the spread of cancer cells, metastasis. Now, I said the lymphatic drainage will follow the arterial supply. So, here we followed our uterine vessels down. Remember, the uterine arteries come straight from the abdominal aorta. The um, ovarian vein will drain into the renal on the left and into the uh, inferior vena cava on the right. As we have the supply to the uterine tubes, the fundus of the uterus and the ovaries from the same vessels, the lymphatic drainage for those structures are going to be the same. So all of these structures will drain into the lumbar nodes up here. Okay. As we move further down, the body of the uterus, the cervix, the upper portion of the vagina, these will drain either to the internal or the external iliac nodes. Keep in mind, iliac nodes. So we're still within the same region. There you can see them. And the nodes are named based on which vessel they lie around. The lower vagina will share the, the lymph drainage of the labia majora. And that is into the superficial inguinal nodes. Right? Horizontal, yeah. And the innervation links in with this as well. So I'm going to break here so that we don't go over into the innervation. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about the innervation and then talk about the male structures. <laughs>